Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to the Your Wealth podcast. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Many, many Australians have become shareholders for the first time this year. NabTrade has welcomed record numbers of new investors to the share market, and so have many, many other platforms. Most new and investing, new and existing investors understand that when they buy a share, they're getting to participate in the fortunes of the company that they've purchased, or they might have bought an ETF, which gives them uh, a little bit of the whole share market. And it's pretty exciting, but it can also be a complex and fraught experience. Share markets and companies have evolved over centuries, and sometimes things can be a little bit more complicated than new investors realize. Small investors, though, are not necessarily on their own. There's actually an, an association for shareholders called the Australian Shareholders Association, and it is comprised of people just like you who own shares. Today, I'm joined by Steve Mab, who has recently joined the board of the Australian Shareholders Association. He's going to talk us about the support that exists for small shareholders and some of the opportunities available to you. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Gemma. Delighted to be with you. I've been listening to your podcast for for quite a while now, so uh, you're delighted to, to join the show. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. We, um, for anyone listening, we uh, we met at an event, and uh, it's an event put on by the ASX, which is one where again shareholders get to come and actually learn a little bit more about participating in the share market, which is pretty awesome. So, Steve, I'll start by asking a few questions about you and how you got involved in investing in general and about the share market and then now why you're looking to to help others. So tell us about how long you've been investing or trading. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, uh, I've really been investing actively for a, for a couple of years now. Um, and prior to that, I, uh, I obviously had a business career where I was uh, working with a, a footwear company and uh, we, uh, we took a little Aussie brand over to the US um, in 2007, just before the GFC, and, uh, and then everything crashed and we kind of reassessed and thought, do we stick this out or do we you know, try and make a go of it? And fortunately, we decided to, to keep going and ended up building the brand up into to one of the top 20 uh, footwear brands in America, which was fantastic. And then in, uh, in 2018, we sold the brand to one of the big publicly listed footwear companies over there. And that gave me the chance to uh, to exit the business and um, came back with my wife and, and three kids back to Australia after 10, 15 years over there. And I've really been, you know, investing full time uh, since that that time and trying to learn as much as I can. Hence why I listen to, to your wealth, of course, to, to tap into all the great people that you have on the show that I can learn from and uh, and try and make some some good decisions with that capital that I was able to generate from the business. Yeah, wow, that's a really interesting start to all of this. Your business experience must have been really, really helpful when you started looking at investing in other companies for the first time. Yeah, I think one of the benefits I had was I got a lot of exposure to, to global markets. Like we were based in the US, but we were doing business in Asia Pacific and doing business in Europe and, you know, got to interact with a lot of great companies, large and small. We were producing our product in China, so I got to, you know, kind of see firsthand what was going on with, uh, I guess, uh, the growth in China and, you know, what was happening with our factories there and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I got a really good, I think, uh, oversight or, you know, experience with with that part of the business. Um, I didn't tend to get as actively involved in uh, the financial side of our, our business. I, I really 
predominantly looked after more of the sales and, and the marketing and product efforts um, and left the accounting and the, the number crunching to, to people that were more qualified than me. So that's really something I've been honing in on now that I'm investing. I, I need to get better with my uh, my, my accounting and my, um, you know, my number crunching skills and, you know, looking at annual reports and looking at trading updates and all those kind of things and trying to, you know, figure out the numbers a bit better. So, uh, so yeah, learning, learning all the time in that area. It's uh, the, the dark arts. Yes, yes, and how, how it's all presented. So Exactly. Given that you're now investing full-time, which is a transition a lot of investors would love to make, but not as many get the opportunity as they may like. A lot of us have to uh, keep up our day jobs. How did you get started? Yeah, so I, I subscribed to a couple of uh, newsletters and then started listening to, you know, a few podcasts like yours, of course, and, um, and then probably about six months in, I, uh, I signed up for an event that was happening in Brisbane that was put on by the Australian Shareholders Association on, on ETFs. And I didn't really know anything about them. I was just interested in, you know, kind of learning more about ETFs that day. And, uh, and then got a chance to chat to the, to the folks that were there and, uh, and learn a bit more about what the ASA does. So, so I thought, you know, that sounds like both good education and good support for, for my journey. And, uh, and I signed up to become a member um, and uh, and have been pretty active ever since with uh, with the shareholders association. So tell us a little bit about what the shareholders association does. Yeah, so it's a it's a not for profit organisation, and it's it's you know predominantly volunteers that uh, that help run the organisation. There's there's five or six very smart paid employees that work in the in the Sydney office to kind of you know help us run the organization but but most of the most of the effort and most of the interactions amongst all of the members and the volunteers across the country and uh, and there's really i think probably four key things that i i think are worth mentioning to people that that the ASA does to try and help retail shareholders basically so so probably the first thing is um, you know they really try to advocate for and help protect retail shareholder rights and and I wouldn't say it's not you know in the sense of being an activist organization it's more just looking at what listed companies are doing and making sure that you know they're treating their retail shareholders fairly and um, you know doing the right thing by them so uh, so that's probably you know one of the first things and we can dig into how, to, how they do that um, they also do a really good job I think educating retail shareholders so you get lots of you know great keynote speakers and experts and fundies, et cetera, come in and talk to the members at, uh, at local meetings or our national conference and, you know, kind of share what they're, what they're doing that the members can, can learn from. Um, there's also some other, other things like we, we, uh, we have a, a monthly magazine that uh, has lots of great articles in it, again, from, you know, experts in, in investing, experts in, uh, in the, um, the fundy world, contributions from some of the better investors in the group, et cetera. So that magazine's always pretty popular and well-read and, and I, I find a good educational tool. Uh, we, do a, we do a podcast as well designed for our, our members. Um, and then there's also a really good community. So, so when we are having face-to-face -face meetings, which at the moment we're not, unfortunately, because of, of COVID, but hopefully we'll return to those again soon, there's a, there's a network of, of local meetings that happen right across the country most months. And you can go along to those meetings and, and talk to other members about, you know, what they're doing and what their experiences are and what they're thinking about the market and individual stocks. And again, we often get, you know, guest speakers in to come and present to the members and, uh, 
and have a really good, you know, Q&A session with. Um, and I, that's one thing I found, Gemma, like as you said, transitioning from a career to, to being an investor, it can be a little bit lonely sometimes. You know, you're on your own and you're trying to figure all these things out by yourself sometimes. So I've enjoyed that part of it where there's, you know, this great community of, of folks that you can connect with and, and, and they, you know, are talking the same kind of language as, as you are. And then probably the final thing is we also uh, monitor we call it, the roughly the top 200 ASX companies. And what that involves is someone um, meeting with the, the normally the chair and, and possibly some of the other directors once or twice a year uh, prior to the AGM normally. Um, and then we talk through with them, you know, the various resolutions and, and other items they're planning to t cover at the AGM. And, uh, and then we put together voting intentions based on those resolutions that will vote on behalf of our members that, that allocate out their proxies to them. So that was one of the things I found when I first started, you know, getting into the stock market. I'd get these letters in the mail from the companies that I'd bought and, you know, they'd be asking me to vote or they'd be, you know, asking asking for my voting intentions. And like I, I suspect a lot of people, I, I didn't do much with them. I probably just, you know, tossed them in the bin most of the time. <laughs> so, uh, so this is something that the ASA does. Well, if you don't know how to vote or you're not, you know, uh, inclined to vote at every AGM or on any EGMs, et cetera, you can nominate the ASA to represent your proxies for you and they'll vote on your behalf. You can opt out of that any time too if you don't like the way the ASA was going to vote. And, again, the way we vote generally is in line with what the – you know, the ASX listing rules are and um, and generally in line with what most retail shareholders would, would consider is in their best interest. So it's not, again, not activism or anything necessarily, more just, you know, trying to stick up for, for retail shareholders if, if the company isn't doing the right thing. It's such a good summary. And it, so I will tell you, um, having recorded with an active trader before, who's one of our sort of a bit bigger investors on now trade, he said exactly what you said, which is becoming a full-time investor is fantastic. He loves it, but it's really lonely. And often he wants to share ideas with other people and all that kind of stuff. And he's formed a little community uh, and loves it. And then having published that podcast, I've actually had people come to me going, how do I join a community like that? Where do I find right. people to talk to? So when you're talking about the ASA effectively uh, offering that to people. I think a lot of people would be interested. It's uh, it's challenging sometimes putting your money on the line and wanting to make good decisions and not having anyone to bounce ideas off. That's right. And it, and it is a pretty broad church. I mean, not, not everybody agrees with everybody else at the local meetings, but that's part of the attraction I find. You know, it's good to get the the counter or the opposite view sometimes to what you think about the market or individual stocks. And it's good to have someone to, you know, kind of challenge your thinking and bounce those things off, you know, face to face or on the online forum or wherever it might be with that ASA community. So, so yeah, I find that very helpful and it, you know, whether, whether the people agree with me or not, it's, I find it, you know, a good way to kind of flesh out and thrash out my thinking. Yeah, it's really excellent to get other people to kind of test your ideas sometimes <laughs> to help you help you understand where you may have overlooked some things or help you firm up your view actually also. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing, you know, for many people who are listening and a lot of a lot of new investors come into market, right? So at Namtrope we've had extraordinary numbers of new applications uh, and people investing for the first time. And there's been a bit of talk about it, which has been quite quite funny. Um, we've not had the Robin Hood experience in Australia or certainly not on now trade with people, you know, punting for the first time and trading away every, every dollar they have. Most of what we've seen was people coming to market really, really early. So in March and April when the market collapsed, uh, 
buying ETFs, buying banks, buying really, really solid stuff going, I think the price has fallen further than it should. It's my first opportunity to buy things at a discount and I'm going to do it. And we haven't seen a lot of really active trading. But obviously, these people are new to market. They don't have the experience. Most shareholders, including new investors, can be quite passive once they've made those purchasing decisions. You know, they've invested they like what they bought, they're going to sit on it. Yeah, and one of the attractions of shares is you don't have to actively manage it like a rental property or, or like the business you were talking about, for example. You don't have that sort of ongoing maintenance requirement. But do you think that that passive investing that can be so attractive can be a bit of a disadvantage for retail investors? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. I, I've probably thought about this quite a, quite a lot. And, I, you know, I think like most investors, I made quite a few mistakes, I think, in that first 12 months. If I look back on, you know, my couple of year journey so far, that first six or 12 months was where I made the bulk of my my errors, I think. And I, fortunately, I think I've been willing to correct them as I go along, hopefully. And obviously, you never get it 100% right. And I'm under no illusions that I'll get it right all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, having someone to bounce those things off has been helpful. And as far as the, the passive side of it goes, uh, as I said, I've been trying to absorb as much information and educate myself as much as I as I can on this journey, and I, I've, I've I guess I've landed with a combination of the two now personally. So I'm doing some passive investing myself through ETFs to get exposure to that international side of the business. I decided that I didn't really want to you know go and trade uh, or buy and sell individual companies internationally. So I'd get my exposure there using, you know, ETFs to get access to some of those international markets that I wanted to put some of my portfolio to work on. And then in Australia, where I think I've got, you know, hopefully an advantage um, through the research I'm, I'm doing and, the, you know, the conversations I'm, I'm having with other investors in ASA, I, uh, I'm picking stocks. So I'm doing a bit of both, you know, I'm kind of passively, I guess, investing through ETFs internationally and then uh, picking stocks in Australia where I hope I can I can beat the market. And, and I'm tracking that using software to track it uh, on an ongoing basis and, and determine whether it's working or not. And then again, that's one of the advantages, I guess, of being part of a community. You can kind of bounce those ideas or bounce that thinking off other people and, you know, they can give you their experience or or their, uh, you know, their history with those kind of different approaches and where they get their information from. So, so for me, I think you've got to decide what kind of investor you want to be probably. There's not, to me, there's nothing wrong with being a passive investor. If you just want to buy the index and hold it for a long time, that's a great way to build, build wealth, I think. I mean, I looked at that um, pretty famous Vanguard chart that a lot of people quote where mm-hmm. there's that 30-year index chart that shows what's happened with, you know, the Australian, the US, the uh, the bond market, the cash market, shows it over a 30-year timeline. And, you know, if you just buy and hold an index for a long time, it seems to me that it is a good way to build wealth uh, over time if you're happy just to, you know, be passive. Um, but if you want to beat the market, then obviously you need to get a bit more active. And I, I don't think it's easy to beat the market from what I've learned so far, but, but I do think it's possible if you're willing to put the work in. Well, we know from the data that uh, professional investors uh, tend to underperform over time after costs. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, it's it's a challenge hard. for everybody, right? Challenge right. for all of us. Do you benchmark yourself? I haven't. This is a question without notice, so I do apologize. I, I do, do, yeah. Try? I do. So I, I use some software to um, to manage my portfolio and, and in, in that software I'm able to actually um, benchmark the portfolio against most of the major indexes. So my international portfolio, for example, I, I benchmark it against the MSCI All World Index 
And then with the um, the domestic stock picking, I'm benchmarking it against the All Lords Accumulation Index. So that way, I kind of I'm comparing is what I'm doing working better than if I just you know as you said were, were passive and just bought an index and went and played tennis or golf or something every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because most retail investors I speak to don't benchmark themselves, and right. the reason for that is that they are usually relying on the portfolio for income. Yeah. Uh, so often retirees, you know, the vast bulk of wealth sits in the retirement sector, people who've right. had to turn their assets into an income stream. And so really what they're looking for is yield and liquidity. They're not necessarily looking for growth. And so they're not benchmarking themselves against the 200 or the all odds. They're, they're really looking for what their portfolio is going to deliver on a daily basis. Yeah, More likely a fortnightly or a quarterly basis. To me, they're expensive. The Exactly. There's, I mean, different investors are going to have different goals, right? So I do think it's important or it has been for me anyway to kind of decide what my goal and what my investing process was going to be to kind of get it down on paper and have an investment plan. And that's something that ASA helps with as well. They have some really good templates or um, examples of how you can build your own investing plan and uh, and then, you know, try and follow that discipline or those rules going forward. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're a dividend or, uh, you know, an income investor, obviously, you're going to have different goals and, and you know, a different process to if you're a, a growth or a total return investor, for example. And, um, again, I think that's one of the benefits of the ASA. You get both kind of, you know, types of investors within the group that you can bounce those different ideas off. And, and we get experts and guest speakers from both kind of parts of those worlds to come and talk to the members at different meetings or contribute to the to the, uh, the monthly magazine. So you get to hear, you know, those different viewpoints if you're a member of the group. Yeah, I, look, I think one of the advantages for small investors is because you're not held to a benchmark, right? You can choose whether you benchmark yourself or not. You can invest however you choose. You know, you're not trying exactly. to beat the 200. So if you're not holding CSL, you're not going to get absolutely smashed in the monthly performance <laughs> reports or something. Yeah, uh, which, you know, right. For professional investors, is a real concern. You know, they, they go, if I'm not holding the thing, you know, if you're not holding Tesla in the US you're in a lot of trouble in the quarterly reports and you may not want to hold Tesla, but you're getting performance benchmarked against a whole lot of other people who do. Are there yeah, areas- no, that's, a, that's a great point, yeah. I mean, I personally want to benchmark myself with my investing just to see whether, you know, all the effort's worth it, you know, because if mm. you're going to put in all the effort, then ideally you want to do better than just holding an index or, you know, holding, a, a, a you know, an income portfolio. So that's why I do it personally. But, again, that's not necessarily for everyone. So given that professional investors do have some constraints, like it is, it's tricky to be a professional investor because you are, you are benchmarked to others and it may not be what you're trying to achieve and you have to basically justify your fees on a regular basis, let's put it that way. Are there some scenarios where small investors may be unfairly treated that the ASA sort of looks to advocate? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think probably the most uh, common area that we have some concerns or, um, you know, issues is around capital raisings. So I, I've I've read quite a few times now that Australia's got one of the most, uh, uh, you know, the largest or one of the most aggressive capital raising markets of, you know, any of the world stock markets. Um, and maybe part of that's because we've got so many resources, companies, et cetera, I'm not, I'm not sure. But but it is pretty common, right, that companies raise capital in Australia. And um, 
one of the things we have, uh, I think we often have an issue with, not all the time. I mean, some companies do a really good job of looking after their retail shareholders with capital raisings too, but but often um, companies might treat their institutional investors better than their retail investors in a capital raising. And uh, and that's where we'll go into bat um, when we see the details of the raising. We'll go into bat for the retail shareholders and, and try and improve um, or change the board's mind around how they're going to treat the retail shareholders in that raising. And we've had some success in those areas. I mean, first of all, the company monitors, if, if it's an ASX 200 type company, the company monitors would be addressing that with, with the chair and, uh, and other directors that they might be talking to. Uh, or even if it's a smaller company, uh, we'll often, you know, reach out to them and uh, and see if we can improve the terms for the retail shareholders. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure lots of folks have heard of Cochlear. Uh, you know, Cochlear was a good example of that where, you know, at the depths of COVID, they came to the market uh, to raise some capital, which, which was fine. Um, but originally, I think the institutional offer was around $800 million and the retail shareholders were only offered $50 million. And, uh, and obviously, we didn't think that was particularly fair because the retail shareholding was a much higher percentage of the total registry than that. So mm. we, uh, we we talked with the board and, and we're able to, you know, I'm sure with some other people too, probably we're able to to get them to increase the, the retail raising to $220 million. So even though there was still some kind of scale back, retail shareholders got a bigger chunk of the... Uh, the final uh, raising than they were originally. So, uh, so that's an example of where you know we would go into bat for our retail shareholders and you know not just our members but really retail shareholders overall, and uh, and try and get them a, a fairer deal if we can when it comes to you know that capital raising type issue. That's such an excellent example because coming back to professional investors um, and institutional investors, many that I speak to will effectively say it's in the capital raisings that you make your money. You know, that, that, that little window where you get a discount, uh, which, you know, eventually, and I say eventually, often close incredibly quickly. Um, it, it's just such a, you know, it's, it's such a handout for so many of them. And if they're that's given right. a significant advantage over the retail investors, then that's pretty pretty tragic. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm just personally, I don't think it has to be like that. You know, it's fine for them to uh, to raise capital and, and then they need capital quickly from their institutional uh, shareholders and they need it in 24 hours. I mean, we, we, we kind of understand all of that. And I think most retail shareholders are probably okay with that too. Um, all we're really asking for is that the retail shareholders get a proportional uh, amount of the raising and that they get the same kind of deal as the institutional um, raising uh, price was so so that to me doesn't seem too hard I know it's probably a little bit more effort for the company than if they just did an institutional raising and got all the money and didn't have to send out the paperwork to their retail shareholders etc mm. um, but on the flip side you know retail shareholders are often very sticky they're very loyal to their companies they're mm. you know often customers of the companies that they hold so uh, to me it doesn't seem that hard that the boards can you know can at least offer their retail shareholders the same kind of deal and the same kind of opportunity that they offer the institutional shareholders in a raising and just all we're really asking for is that you look after both lots of your shareholders in the same way. It's a, it's a great one and I think a lot of our investors, plenty of investors probably wouldn't have been uh, 
closely attuned to that issue in the last sort of six or seven years. Anyone who was around during the GFC would be very on top of it, would be very sensitive to it. Then we had this sort of long period where certainly there were capital raisings but not significant. And then obviously in the depths of COVID, the big ones came to market and people suddenly realised how important it is to be able to move quickly and have some cash available. But if the company's not making it available to retail shareholders, then you don't get a look in. So it's wonderful to know there is work being done to ensure that they do have that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. Completely agree. Any other areas, sort of governance-related issues, it's quite interesting to me because we talk about ESG. So this is the ethical, social and governance issues. You guys really focus on the governance side, I guess. Any other governance issues that you guys work on? Yeah, I mean, the companies that we monitor, we really dig deep into their financial performance, uh, you know, the governance itself, the remuneration reports and structures, the composition of the boards. So they're things that, you know, on those top 200 companies where, you know, again, most of our members have a a significant part of their portfolios allocated to those top 200 companies. The monitors dig in deeply with with those annual reports and um, half-yearly reports and then, you know, work proactively with the with the chair and, and potentially other directors on, uh, you know, on those issues and those resolutions are going to be voted on. So, so we dig in deep to all of those things and, again, try and represent retail shareholders in general well with those issues, with those top couple of hundred companies. We'd love to cover even more than that, but there's just a finite number of volunteers we have, obviously, to try and cover the whole market it would be impossible with the number of people we have. Um, so that's why we focus on, the, you know, the top couple of hundred companies on the market. And uh, and in total, you know, we probably attend a couple of hundred AGMs a year, and I think we vote somewhere around four billion dollars worth of proxies, which which puts us somewhere normally between the tenth and twentieth largest uh, shareholder on on most of those uh, those companies that we vote on. So uh, so it is, you know, it, it does make a difference, you know, if you're part of the organisation and you you want to allocate your your, your vote to the ASA. Uh, collectively, we are able to make a difference and, and often, you know, uh, improve the results for, for the retail shareholders with the companies that we monitor. And, and the vast majority of companies we're, we're voting for or in support of, you know, what they're doing, I think, you know, probably about 80% of, uh, of the resolutions that, you know, AGMs we're voting for. So, uh, so most companies, I think, are, you know, listening to their retail shareholders and trying to do the right thing by their retail shareholders. And, and if they are, they have our support. You know, when, when they're not, we try and change their mind. I suspect many people listening have never thought about the proxies, right? And would just, as you say, just chuck it in the recycling and think, well, even if I did feel very strongly about this, it's highly unlikely my vote is going to have any impact. So the idea that you guys can vote collectively is very powerful. Can you give me a few examples of of what you vote on? For example, like for someone who's never even bothered to open a proxy form and see what it's about, give us some examples. Yeah, well, there's there's normally a few standard things at AGMs that you always vote on. So, so one of them is the remuneration report, where you basically uh, that one isn't normally binding, but but it um, you know is still something shareholders get to vote on, and that's really all about is the CEO and the the board being compensated fairly for the results that they're delivering. And and again, most of the time we support those if the you know the the management team and the board are doing a good job growing shareholder value, then uh, then you know generally speaking we're going to support them. 
but the times where, you know, maybe CEOs or boards are being overpaid and destroying shareholder value, that's where we'd be saying, hang on a second, we don't think this is reflective of the job that you're doing and, and we're not, you know, necessarily going to support that. So, so that's a common one. Um, director elections. So that's, you know, it's normally a resolution that you vote on at most AGMs where, you know, a, a new director or a director is being re-elected. And we look at each and every one of those directors that are being proposed for election and determine whether, um, you know, they're the right person for, for that job based on the information that the company's giving us, of course. And, and there's a lot of judgment calls that go into that, but, you know, things like are they representing uh, diversity on the board? You know, we, we want at least 30% female members on the board. We want at least 30% male members on the board, for example. And a lot of these things cross over with uh, the guidelines that you get from the ASX themselves or the guidelines from the Institute of Company Directors. There's a lot of crossover with, with how we see those things and what those two, uh, I guess, leadership bodies or, or the, the listing companies uh, provide as guidance to the companies themselves. And then I think, you know, another one of the common things that gets voted on is uh, the actual, you know, company financials and, and reports themselves. So, uh, you know, th those are the kind of things you're going to see on most at most AGMs and, uh, and they're the things that they're asking you to vote on when you get that piece of paper in the mail. And, again, if you don't vote, normally what happens is the vote goes to the chairman. So yeah. he'll, he or she will vote on your behalf if you don't allocate your vote. And if they're not doing something right by retail shareholders, then really you don't want to vote for that proposal, of course, and that's where, you know, the ASA would, would vote accordingly on your behalf in what, you know, we think and most folks think are, are the right ways to vote for, for the retail shareholder. I think that's fantastic. And if you look at, you know, if you keep it up with the business press or the financial press, even if you follow Twitter or any any of the chat room, you know, there's plenty of places to find very frequent examples of where boards and companies are not doing the kinds of things you'd necessarily be comfortable with. So having an opportunity to raise that I think is really important. Uh, yeah, and a, lot of, a lot of investors don't um, or, or may not choose to um, to get involved. But, you know, a lot of us have seen stuff over the last few years where you, you really wish you'd had an opportunity to do something about it, even if it yeah, just makes I you mean, feel better to pass it, to, to put in your proxy. That's right. And I, I mean, I've heard it said, oh, well, I, I won't bother voting because, you know, if I don't like what they're doing, I'll just sell the shares. And, you know, that's true. That's definitely mm. an approach you can take. But sometimes it's not willful or a deliberate um, attempt to do the wrong thing by the retail shareholders. Sometimes it can just be, a you know, a, a potentially a lack of understanding or, you know, a, lack of consciousness of how something might affect retail shareholders. Uh, so so our, our, I guess, intent there is to, to talk to the boards and talk to the companies before the votes uh, but, or before the resolutions even come about and try and get them to, uh, you know, to improve or progress what they might have otherwise done. And, and that, to, to me, feels like a better option if you can pull that off than just saying, oh, I'll sell the shares and move on to another company. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that. you know, trying to be proactive, I guess, about it rather than just saying, oh, I'll sell the company and move on to something else feels to me like a better approach in the first instance. Yeah, particularly if you sort of broadly like the company and what it's doing, but there's sort of individual instances where you're not super happy. Exactly, uh, yeah. It's a more constructive approach. So yeah, that's right. I was going to ask you a question about what you do in your day job, but investing is what you do in your day job now. 
It is, yeah, and, you know, I love it. I probably spend a few hours a day, you know, reading the AFR, listening to Your Wealth, whatever it is, to, you know, trying to keep myself educated. And, um, you know, I, I find it's a lot of fun and uh, and something that's, you know, really challenging the, the grey matter. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's what I do, you know, most days as well as obviously trying to help out where I can with, with the ASA and, uh, you know, and our members. And, um, you know, who knows, I might get bored one day and decide I need to go back and do something else. But at the moment, I've found it really interesting and, you know, really stimulating and, and so far relatively successful. So uh, hopefully that will continue. It's, I know plenty of listeners love to hear about people who've given up their day job and take up investing full time. And they particularly love to hear about people who have tracked their performance and are confident that it's delivering what they want. So I think everyone's greatest fear is you chuck in the nine to five and then find that you probably should have just bought an ETF. <laughs> that would be a bit depressing. Um, yeah, exactly. What, do you have I any think just on that too, Gemma. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was going to say was if, if I could go back a little bit, I would have loved to have started earlier, you know, because the, right. the effects of compounding, as I'm sure you've talked about before, mm. are, are pretty staggering, especially in that last 10 and 20, 30 years if you start early. Um, so I've been trying to educate my kids and my nieces and things a little bit recently around why it's a good idea for them to start in their, you know, in their 20s as opposed to their 40s or 50s potentially where, where I started. Um, so, yeah, that, that incredible impact of compounding and getting started early is probably the, you know, I think one of the most important things and uh and you know if you've got kids or you know friends or whatever in your life that are relatively young still trying to give them some basic education even just getting them into a basic index fund or something would be you know would be great advice i think to to share with them so uh, there's an awesome um compound interest calculator actually on the the um the government website i think it's smart money um dot Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's a really good um, compound interest calculator where you can basically put in um, put in any uh, amount, any kind of, you know, return rate, any uh, duration, regular deposits, all that kind of thing. And, uh, and then that'll basically, um, you know, tell you what your, you know, your wealth will grow to over certain periods of time. And you can change. You can say, hey, if I got a 5% return, what does it look like? If I get a 10% return, what does it look like? And even starting with a really small amount, it's amazing how that compounds over time. So, uh, so yeah, that would probably be the one thing I wish I did differently. I wish I probably had started earlier. Even with a little bit of money, it would have been fantastic to start earlier. It's always great advice and it's the most common piece of advice as well. And <laughs> I, I think I got that website has. wrong. Sorry, it's moneysmart.gov.au. Money smart, yes, so, yeah, it is. You just search the compound interest calculator. It's, it's a very interesting tool to play around with. So one of the things about compound interest is it does assume straight line returns, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Have you learned anything from the recent volatility? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it isn't a straight line, right? There's a lot of you know ups and downs over a particular over a longer journey, I'm sure. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's uh, you know it's important to also work on the emotional side of your investing. I've figured out, and I've read a couple of great books that uh, that have helped me with that. Um, there's one called The Little Book of Behavioral Investing that I really enjoyed reading, and, and as the name suggests, it is only a little book, but uh, it talks a lot about, you know, the, the different biases or, uh, you know, issues that we have as, as humans and, uh, and what you can do to at least try and be conscious of them and 
and work on them and, you know, things like not selling out in a market panic, obviously, and not selling out at the bottom of the market. You know, it's a very easy said but probably harder to do sometimes. So, so I've been trying to, I guess, you know, be conscious of those biases or those weaknesses we have. There's, a, there's another really interesting YouTube video I once watched actually with Charlie Munger from Berkshire fame, Warren Buffett's partner, and he gave this very interesting speech to, to one of the graduating classes of uh, his former uh, college over in the US on the, the psychology of human misjudgments, it's called, and there's like 20 <laughs> different things that, you know, are all these mistakes or, or problems that humans have when they're trying to make decisions, and uh, it, was, it was fascinating to, to listen to, you know, all those things. And the examples he gave over history of when people have, you know, made big mistakes just because of these human, you know, failings that we have. So, again, I've got them too. I think everyone's got them, but it's good to try and, you know, I guess get conscious and aware of them and then, you know, battle against them when the market's crashing or, you know, maybe when the market's taking off too, try not to get too too excited or too greedy because it can change pretty quickly as we've seen recently. Yeah, one of the things I'm I'm sort of most conscious of in the current environment is I've had so many investors come to the market they, we didn't see panic selling at all uh, from retail investors, which I was really impressed with. You know, there were good reasons to be concerned when COVID came along. People didn't panic. They didn't sell. They hung on to their good stuff. And the, we saw the opposite. We saw so much buying from retail investors. All the cash that had been waiting for the market to come off just flooded into the market. So my concern now is more that there's going to be a heap of retail investors who have had spectacular success in their first three months of investing, like extraordinary uh, sort of once-in-a-decade return over three months and then if the market turns or we have a like a real turnaround and there's a grind down because I remember through the GFC you'd have these bounces and then it would just grind down for ages and it was quite that was what wore people out that was when they started to go I just can't hang on anymore I just have to get out of this I'm, I'm exhausted by it. the share price just falling and falling um, so we're gonna have a heap of people who are used to brilliant short-term success and they may not be prepared for the alternative. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, well, ho- hopefully not. Hopefully it'll be a while before we have another really big crash and, you know, by then they'll be up even more than they are today. But, yeah, I mean, look, it's been great. I've heard that story a few times as well. So I'm obviously really happy if lots of retail shareholders have done well in the in the bounce back and, you know, hopefully the market doesn't, you know, overcorrect again anytime soon and and they will have all, you know, done quite well in the in the, in the bounce back. Yeah, I had lovely short-term experiences that, um, and they can kind of hang on from here, which would be lovely. So thinking about other retail investors, uh, you're an advocate for the Shareholders Association. You had a great personal experience with it. How would you like other shareholders to get involved? Yeah, well, look, probably one of the best ideas is just to, you know, jump on the website quickly. You can kind of dig into lots of the content that's on the website to find out a bit more about the Shareholders Association. And the address is just australiansshareholders.com.au. And, uh, and once face-to-face meetings restart, which will hopefully be soon, you can come along to a, to a local meeting uh, for free just to kind of try it out and see how it all works and talk to some other members. So they're probably the best couple of suggestions I'd have. It's, it's, I think it's only about $130 a year to be a member and, uh, and that includes the magazine and, you know, all the meetings are free, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, that, that's what I'd suggest. Jump on the website, have a dig around and, uh, and if you're interested, you know, reach out to us and, and we can connect you to someone in your local area um, or, again, when face-to-face meetings are back on, come along to one of the, the local meetings and, and see how it all works. Are you doing online meetings at the moment? 
We are, yeah. So at the moment we're doing lots of Zoom meetings and, uh, and yeah, most of the, the local conveners that run their local meetings are now running a Zoom meeting and it's, you know, virtually the same as what the in-person meeting would be. We've often, again, got a guest speaker coming along and presenting for the start of the Zoom session and then after that we do a Q&A and members can, you know, again, talk to each other and bounce things off each other. So, uh, so yeah, lots of Zoom meetings happening as well. There's still plenty of contact and plenty of engagement happening and less travel, which I suppose is, you know, somewhat of a bonus. <laughs> we've all have a lot less travel in our lives at the moment yeah absolutely Steve from the Australian Shareholders Association thank you so much for your time today my pleasure Gemma really appreciate you giving us the time and, uh, and thanks for everything you're doing as well to help educate all of us retail shareholders Oh, well, we uh, we appreciate what you guys do. I think a lot of people don't um, don't necessarily appreciate that there is an association working on their behalf. It's always good to find out. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks again, Gemma. Really appreciate it. For those listening, thank you so much for tuning in today. Now, as always, we really appreciate it. And we also really love to hear from you. So if there are any topics you'd like to hear more about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealthatnab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.